Welcome to the Asian Heart-Mind-Body Collective. I'm Adele Ray. And I'm Danielle Yung. We're here to bring essential healing to Asian communities and beyond. This podcast holds sacred circle for everyday people by integrating mindfulness practice, cross-cultural ritual, and storytelling. With the tools of our own medicine, we unearth the impact of intergenerational trauma, unravel the deeper connection between all things, and explore the spiritual mystery of simply living every day in our beautiful Asian bodies. Join us and dive deeply into the discovery of our own medicine and heart, mind, body awareness. In episode five, we take a journey inwards with Rebecca Olstead, herbalist and cultural organizer, to explore her fascinating healing path to reconnect with her mixed race Chinese ancestry. Her adventure takes us to Cuba, where she learns about plants for the first time and has a mysterious remembering. We talk about how plants have helped her cultivate deeper relationships with her ancestors. We also dive into her community work to organize folks longing for cultural gathering and healing through arts, cooking, astrology, and magic. Finally, Rebecca shares practices for reciprocity and respect of the land and indigenous peoples. At the end of our show, Rebecca leads us through a sweet plant meditation where we actually sit with plants from our home. Thank you, Danielle. And today I'm excited to welcome Rebecca C. Tung Olstead. She is an herbalist and cultural organizer grounded in love for the earth. Through her herbal practice, Red Autumn Apothecary, she supports people in their emotional, physical, and spiritual health, teaches classes and workshops, and makes herbal medicine. And I personally have had access to this wonderful medicine that you have shared with the world, and I'm so excited to have you with us, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's perfect kismet that we have you on our show at this time of year. Yeah, thank you. We're in autumn. This is the week of the Mid-Autumn Moon Festival. It's a significant time period for many Asians. I just wanted to note that you have the Red Autumn Apothecary, which is named after your Chinese name. Could you share a little bit about that? and the significance of Red Autumn to you? So the name of my my herbal practice is Red Autumn Apothecary. And I took that from my my Chinese name that my mom gave me, Sitang. I still actually struggle to pronounce that somewhat because Cantonese is so tonal. So I'm giving that qualifier to any Cantonese speakers who might be listening. And it translates to English as thinking of Red Autumn. So I think it's a really beautiful name. I'm so grateful to my mom for giving me that name. And it's also somewhat mysterious. Like I've been living into like, what does that name mean? Like, what does that mean to think of Red Autumn? Like, it's just so, so poetic. It's a name that signifies contemplation. And to me, Autumn is so, so much about actually equanimity because Autumn is such a beautiful season. Where I grew up in Colorado, the trees change colors. I would, you know, play in the, the leaf piles. I loved Autumn. And it would always feel like it'd go by so fast. So I think to me, there, there is some type of message that I you know, contemplate of how can I love something without clinging to it? How can I love something knowing that it will end? And to me, that, that is the journey of being a human in this lifetime. And it feels hard. Like sometimes I wish I had an easier name. For instance, my English name, Rebecca, means child of God. And there's a way in which like that's a very sweet name. And it's a name that kind of feels easier for me. It's like, yeah, I'm a child of God. Sure. You know, like, I mean, maybe that, that might not be easy for other people, but for me, that's very comfortable. I'm like, whatever I consider God to be, I am a, I am a child of this universe. Like it's fairly straightforward. And I think my, my Chinese name takes me to a different place of 
again, it feels harder. It's like, I have to sit with equanimity. I have a meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of not craving something um, or being averse to it, like that to me is autumn. It's like, I crave autumn actually, (laughs) but but it's going to go away. So I have to sit with that in between. So, you know, here we are in autumn. And that's something that I think about in this season is, you know, how to appreciate this time, love this time and accept that it is temporary. And then, of course, I think there's also the traditions of what are we letting go of? Um, what are we shedding? Yeah, letting go of so we can prepare for rest for that internal time. So that's that's definitely what I'm thinking about in this season is that it is a time to go inward. And I really I love this season. So, you know, to me, I'm excited about that. <laughs> I'm excited for the, the time to go inwards. Awesome. Thanks so much, Becca. We know you uh, hail from Colorado and wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit more of uh, what it was like to grow up there. I loved growing up in Colorado in so many ways. It is such beautiful, beautiful land. I grew up in the Boulder, Denver area, which is Arapaho territory. And I just grew up with really good friends, good community, and was really deeply impacted by that land there. Just beautiful, beautiful mountains. I grew up in the front range. So every day I'm looking at the foothills of the mountains and, you know, I carry that with me everywhere. So I'm really, really blessed to live in Oakland in Ohlone territory. And it is truly a blessing. Like I, I'm so grateful to my life path for bringing me here and wherever I go, I know I'm carrying those Rocky mountains in my heart because they're, you know, they're my inspiration. They've taught me so much about how to be a person I love them, you know, so even though I'm not near the mountains, I'm, I'm thinking about them all the time. So I really think about that. And then for, you know, my journey, both with the plants and in really like coming to understand myself, growing up in Colorado was definitely, you know, it, it had some challenges as well. Like it wasn't a very racially diverse area. It wasn't a very economically diverse area where I grew up in particular Um, very close to Boulder, Colorado. So I think I always kind of struggled to know how I fit in. And I'd also say that at that time in particular, and I don't know if things have changed now or not, there was a very specific white liberal perspective of we don't see race. And I think now that dialogue has changed and a lot of people have been learning that that's not appropriate to say that or to, to think that. And that's really the attitude that I grew up with was, being surrounded by white people who said, we don't see race, we don't see you as different. And I do want to acknowledge that there is safety in that to some extent in a white supremacist culture that they weren't trying to other me. So there there was some like safety in that. And there was also what to me felt like a dehumanization because why would they see they don't see who I am? So I'm, uh, I'm Chinese descendant. I'm also white European descendant. And to say, I don't see your race to me meant you're the default for them is white. And they're not seeing who I am as a Chinese person. So, you know, that was troubling uh, to experience that growing up. And I think also just lack of community. Like, I'm sure I'm not the only one. And I've talked to many people when we're the only one in our community who looks a certain way or has a certain experience, it can just feel a little alienating. So I kind of lived these multiple worlds of having like incredible friends, um, like loving my schools, like just really like positive aspects in that way, uh, but also not seeing myself reflected. And just having a lot of questions about how I fit in, how, how, do, how do I connect to my Chinese ancestry? How do I connect to all of who I am? And even before I had words for that, those were questions that I had. It was just feelings in my heart where I was like, people are telling me I'm not Chinese, but I know that's not true. I can look in the mirror and I can tell that's not true. And there's also something 
deeper going on spiritually where it just felt wrong to to not have access to all of who I am. So that's that's a snippet of, of growing up in Colorado. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a powerful snippet. Uh, something you you talked about in terms of like the disconnection or the loss culturally growing up in Colorado. Um, is there something about that experience that drew you to plant medicine to herbalism? Can you say more about about that experience? I think there that was part of the draw was to understand my myself and to heal from those experiences. And I wouldn't have known that maybe at the time. And now looking back, I can see how how much that has been a part of the journey. And now it's very much a part of my journey is working with plant medicine to understand all of myself, to honor my Chinese lineage, and to also honor my European lineages too, actually. And also to honor the, the places where I am currently. Like the plants to me help me with, with all of that. So I think for my herbal journey, you know, going back to how I grew up, I just spent a lot of time outside, like playing in the creeks, playing in the hills, playing in the mountains. In our school, we were blessed and fortunate to have things like outdoor education programs. Sometimes we go out together, even for a camping trip or um, things like that. And we didn't really actually learn that much about plants. Like the focus was typically on, you know, team building or um, like how how hard can you hike up that mountain or things like that. And you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, first it was a very like settler colonial perspective. There was never any acknowledgement of the first peoples of the land. There was never any acknowledgement that all land is indigenous land. So that, that was a really lacking harmful way to approach relationships with the natural world. And also we just didn't talk about the plants. Like I didn't learn how to identify plants. I didn't learn how to identify trees. I didn't learn how to make medicine from the plants, you know, so that was all lacking. And I think I had this curiosity because I did love the natural world so much where it, it, I realized there was this really big discrepancy, you know, of I spend so much time outside, but I can't even name what I'm looking at. And, you know, and there's something to be said about some of the names are in English, some of them have Latin names. And I wouldn't say that to me that, you know, those are the priority, like that those names are more important than other names. But it felt like just another level of intimacy. Like I felt like there was some intimacy missing because I just didn't really know much about what I was looking at, what I was seeing, what I was experiencing. So as I had more opportunities to learn about this thing called herbalism, it piqued my interest. And the first place that I really felt this like excitement and inspiration in my heart was actually in Cuba, in Havana, Cuba, because I had this amazing blessed opportunity to study abroad there when I was in college. And in Havana, it's, you know, first I want to say that literally every single culture works with plants. Some of us at various points and in different places have become disconnected from that. And all of us have that knowledge at some point in our lines. Mm. And my experience of being in Havana, Cuba was that I was seeing it up close and personal a lot. Like in a very urban city, it's a, it's a tropical place. People were growing things everywhere. So even in these teeny apartments, Cuban people would cut out the, the bottom half of a water bottle, put some soil in it and grow things on their windowsill. Like it was just, there's so much plant life there. And in my experience of, of being in Havana, I befriended kind of like the local gardener who sold plants. And he'd also, he'd sold plants that people could you know plant in their homes, but he'd also just like cut plants. So if you needed to make a strong tea, he would just go and and cut some oregano for you, cut some cut some leaves here and there. And I would just hang out with him in his garden and and it was so cool. Like I was just I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so I, I think that's the first time where I saw plant medicine is super accessible. Like you're growing it in your yard. You don't even need a lot of space or apartment, right? And and you're just cutting that plant and making tea. So that just sparked even more interest of like, I really want to learn these skills because this is this beautiful, accessible medicine. It can be, it can be so easy, you know, again, to, to grow some oregano and then cut it. If you, you feel you have a cold or flu, make a, make a strong tea. Um, so that, that was kind of how I got started in herbalism. And that links to, I think, you know, your question of, of healing, because the more I've gotten to know the plants over the past several years that I really started walking with them, like the healing's not just about, you know, here's a tea you drink because you have a cold or a flu. The healing happens on a lot of different levels, on really deep spiritual, emotional, and ancestral levels too. So I think some of the disconnect I've been feeling of not really understanding myself, not feeling in touch with my Chinese ancestors, not feeling, um, I'm feeling very in touch with the land, you know, again, going back to Colorado, but also like there's a big disconnect being a settler immigrant because especially when there's not acknowledgement of the first peoples of the land or no relationship um which like in my school system and all that they're mm -hmm. you know they spoke of indigenous peoples in the past which is very harmful of course so i think there's all these levels of disconnect like some level of disconnect with place mm -hmm. some some levels of disconnect with chinese heritage disconnect with the white european heritage as well and the plants for me are have been starting to and are and will be helping me with that journey you share that experience in in cuba and just uh connecting to the culture to the people of that land at that juncture did you have a sense of your own cultural connection to the plants and experience of your own cultural uh lineage or like how how did you kind of like make your way to reconnecting with your own cultural roots and herbalism honestly part of it was by going to cuba um so I had grown up in my schools speaking Spanish and was learning Spanish and then just kind of ended up in Cuba more or less, you know, I would say now by, by my ancestors will, but also kind of by chance. Like I, I went to this school where I had a very significant scholarship to attend and I didn't have extra money. My family doesn't have extra money to, you know, do things like studying abroad, but the study abroad program was totally covered by my scholarship. So I was like, okay, like, you know, I speak Spanish, I'm learning Spanish, like Cuba's an interesting place. It's kind of paid for as part of my, you know, my package at the school. So I'm going to go. And that's funny because some people dream of going to Cuba, but I just didn't have that relationship. In fact, my mom was actually, she was actually quite nervous about me going to Cuba because of her own relationship with communist countries. So there was actually a lot of concern for her. But for me, I didn't actually have that much of a pre-existing relationship with Cuba other than a little bit of what I've, you know, read and heard about. And going to Cuba really opened up my eyes in so many different ways. You know, first of all, I'm just like so incredibly grateful to the Cuban people I met and spent time with. There's people who to this day I still call my sisters because we stayed close throughout the years. Like they're really, they are my sisters, you know. So like first and foremost, that's kind of what's most important to me is the relationships I built there. I think it took going to a country that was very different from the United States and was not one of my ancestral countries to actually prepare me to go to China because I don't think I was ready to go yet. And there was also some like really interesting things that happened in Cuba. One is that I got ID'd as Chinese like all the time. So there's a history of Chinese presence in Cuba. They were brought as, you know, workers. And a lot of Cubans say that, you know, the Cuban people are made up of a mix of 
African, Spanish, and Chinese. And they actually name Chinese as like a prominent part of that identity. There's this idea that the indigenous peoples of the land were unfortunately mostly killed, though some Cubans would disagree with that. And they're, you know, reclaiming and saying, no, we've been here, we've been hiding out. So just wanted to add that level of complexity to the identity. Um, but people people speak about it in those ways, African, Spanish, Chinese. So when I'm in Cuba, people were constantly like yelling at me in the street, like, China, China, you know, like, it was almost overwhelming, but they were always kind of <laughs> identifying me as Chinese. And as a mixed race person, I have had the experience of being identified differently by different people based on their context. And I hadn't had a ton of experiences where people were so like vocally and very obviously like constantly referring to me as a Chinese person. So I think there was like a level of confidence actually that that being identified that way, even if it was in sort of funny and sometimes even rude ways, you know, on the street that like helped me feel a little bit more grounded that like people are seeing me as Chinese. Because sometimes I wonder where do I even fit in that, that picture. And then the other thing that is really beautiful, and I didn't know at the time, but it, it kind of links to other parts of my life is that I was really, really drawn to the plants and the trees in Cuba, and particularly banyan trees. Like I was fascinated with them. I just thought they were the coolest thing I had ever seen in my whole life. Like I just immediately felt this connection. And I grew up in Colorado. We do not have banyan trees. You know, those are a very, very tropical tree. Um, and they're very different than any tree I'd ever, ever seen or ever met before. And I just love these trees. So fast forward a few years later, I end up going to China as part of a trip to reconnect with my roots, to actually go to my ancestral villages where my grandparents are from. And there's all these banyan trees. There's all these banyan trees in, in the part of China, Guangdong province, where my family's from. That's southeastern China. And the plants look really familiar and the trees look really familiar. And I'm like, there's, this is like some of the same plants are here that I first met in Cuba before I made the journey to China. And, you know, later I really reflected on it and I got so curious. I actually looked up the latitude of Havana, Cuba and Donggung, China, which is where our, uh, you know, our villages are. And they're the same latitude. They're 23 degrees North off by like a point, you know, 0.0 percentages. So they're the same latitude. And I didn't know that. I had no idea. So I truly believe that my ancestors brought me to Cuba first to prepare me to go to China. Wow. And I also think that like my, my spirit recognized the banyan tree is like our tree because going to China, those banyan trees, like they're the memory keepers of our villages. Like they're, they're the elders. There's literally, you know, um, there will be a tree in a village that is, that has a little, almost like wall built around it. And it is the memory keeper. So when I went to my, take for instance, my grandpa's village, I don't speak any Chinese language. So there was this barrier and I felt some sadness of like not being able to connect to the people in this village. And I knew I'd have to connect really strongly to the plants and to the water and communicate in that way to some extent. And so that's what I did. Like I got to go to the banyan tree in my grandpa's village and pray and give thanks. And it's the it's a 500 year old tree that was there at the founding of the village. So that tree has seen all of my family. It's been there since the beginning. So even though I in that particular village, I didn't actually get to meet family members, but I did because I got to meet the tree. Wow. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plant sisters mm -hmm. or living, mm -hmm. living descendants. Yeah. Wow. 
plant. Descent. Yeah, so I definitely think Cuba prepared me for China and those plants kind of prepared me for my own ancestral plants because they ended up being the same, actually. That's such a beautiful story. I'm, I'm like so curious about the body's like ability, power, wisdom to remember. I mean, you, you described it as your spirit remembering this tree. Yeah, but I, I don't know if, if you had a felt sense of what it was like in your body to like be there with the banyan trees in Cuba. Yeah, it was joy. Like mm. there wasn't there wasn't a voice that said, this is a Chinese tree. This is your ancestral tree. I was just curious and like in love with this tree. Mm. And I didn't know why, other than that it was just like a really cool tree. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And I will say I've had a few other experiences like that, that I can't explain through rational mind. And I grew up in a way that was not, um, well, I grew up Christian and I grew up kind of not encouraged to think of spirit in ways that are outside of that paradigm. And I no longer identify as Christian. I have respect for many of those teachings, but don't identify that way and have a different perspective now that's yeah, that's just, that includes a lot of things, appreciation for the earth, appreciation for my ancestors and communicating with plants, for example, as part of like my, my spiritual perspective and, and worldview. And, but it's been like a process of both learning and unlearning because I wasn't necessarily raised in those ways to talk to plants, for example. So there's, there's been kind of this beautiful discovery of just, I wasn't always seeking it, but it would just come. Like, for example, the banyan tree, I didn't know, I didn't know what was happening there. I just knew I felt connected to this tree. And then another example would be, you know, I went to school to study herbalism for three years here in Oakland. And as part of that experience, we had apprenticeship groups with our teachers. And one of my apprentice groups, I was working with our teacher, Atapa, and she's the founder of Ancestral Apothecary School. We were helping her with medicine making as part of our learning. And we were chopping up a flower that I had never worked with before. Uh, one of the English words for it is mimosa blossom of the mimosa tree. I think some people call it Persian silk tree. And I had never seen this plant before. Again, it's not, or tree. It's not one that grows in Colorado. It does grow a lot in California. So now I see it everywhere because this was, you know, many years before I learned ago, before I learned to identify it. And it's this beautiful pink blossom. It's like kind of extravagant and looks sort of Dr. Seussian. It's a very physical process to make herbal medicine. Like you're chopping it, um, you know, you get the scent of it, you get the color of it, the feeling of it in your hands. So as I was chopping this, this blossom, I just got this feeling. And this one was actually almost more, it was a feeling. And it was also somewhat of like a, a knowing where I was like, this is an ancestral plant. And I just knew it in the moment. I was like, there's something like this. I know this plant, even though I had never met it before. So I asked Atava, I was like, okay, so what, you know, who is this plant? And where does it come from? Because I just got this really strong feeling that like, this is a plant that my people have worked with. And she was like, well, you're right. It is Chinese medicine. You know, it's, it's one of our really common medicines. We work with the bark primarily as Chinese people more than the blossom. And the, the bark is used to uplift your spirit. So kind of like an antidepressive, you can make an antidepressive formula with it. So that was another one of those moments where I just felt this like actual like real humility and gratitude towards my ancestors for these moments of remembrance, you know, to, to just feel in my cells. And I think there's so many ways you could look at that. And I don't know if I have, there's just one right way. Part of me, it's like, it's my cells remembering those cells um, or just a, 
you know, if it's past lives that somebody, you know, I remember from some other time that, that I had worked with the plant, but there's something there where it was just this spark. And when I feel those sparks like that, like they're very precious and, and confirmation of the beauty of this path. And that even for those of us like myself who felt so disconnected from my ancestors, like they're right there, you know, they're remembering things that are right there. And, and I think my teachers, people like Atava have really taught me that the more we grow those relationships with our ancestors, also the more we tend to hear from them, the more we tend to connect with them and not necessarily to expect that they'll talk to me in the ways that I want to be spoken to or whatever. Cause that's another thing is like, I think I can have expectations of like, okay, ancestors, like teach me everything. And that doesn't always happen like that. So to have some humility that the teachings and the, you know, the the points of connection come when they come in a timeline that I may not understand. But I have felt like walking this path with the plants, walking a path where I'm so much more open to connecting with my ancestors and praying to them and talking to them, like they do talk back to me more. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, something that our teacher, Carol, uh, has said before about remembering that remembering is a process of healing. Hmm. I like that. You know, it's so funny because I've known you for a while. I know you're mixed race, my mixed race sister here Mm -hmm. At, at the same time. And I know that you're an herbalist, but I never made the connection between you and, uh, the Chinese medicine until you tell your story of your journey from Cuba to China and then the plant medicine from the ancestral apothecary, you know, really to get in touch. So I'm curious as to your connection to traditional Chinese medicine. Do you practice any of it? Um, has it influenced your work and how do you view it? Yeah, that's such a great question. I have so much respect for Chinese medicine, mostly as being the recipient of it. You know, it's there's definitely a training, of course, to become an acupuncturist, to become a you know a Chinese medicine doctor, and I have not taken that path. There's a part of me that thinks maybe one day I will, just because I I do love that medicine so much and I respect that you know frame of knowledge so much, and it's just not the path I've taken yet. And the way that I weave that in though is so going back to my my herbal training, um, the training that that we did at Ancestral Apothecary School, and that really informs how I think and also informs how I teach and how I work with the plants, is in a lot of ways a a pretty place-based herbalism. So like what's growing where we are? Can I grow those plants as part of my reciprocity to the plant world? Um, Can I be aware? It's like also part of respect to place, right? Like what is growing here? What's abundant here? And there's also other layers to it too, of am I being respectful to the plants of this place? So I I essentially do not forage uh, because that was the teaching of my teachers that, you know, if I'm not indigenous to the land that I'm living on, I need to be very, very cautious of how I am on the land because I don't have those relationships. Like I might look at a stand of nettles, for instance, and say, that looks abundant. I'm just going to take some. But if I haven't been tending to that land, watching it, spending time with it for you know, seven plus years is is a framework some people use, or also you could say a lifetime, I might not know that, you know, that patch of nettles is a fourth of the size that it should be. Um, so that's, you know, something to think of is like, it takes really deep relationship to land to, to take respectfully. And that's also in the context of because herbalism has increased in popularity, uh, there is actually over harvesting going on, you know, so it's not an abstract kind of caution, like there are people kind of going out into different spaces and just taking a lot of plants without respect to the plant ecology, 
to the land around it or to the first peoples of that land who are also still tending to plants in what we might consider quote unquote wild spaces and for them are just part of you know the fabric of their lives. So I say all that because yeah again it informs like how I work with the plants you know in my training we really focus on plants of this land and also plants of our ancestors. So that was a big part of the training is like also connect with your medicine you know like whoever you are who are the plants your ancestors worked with um because they're going to come forward as strong medicine for you and again that to me is something that sort of defies rational explanation in a lot of ways um and i found it to be true i mean the ways that chinese plants have shown up for me have been like really healing in ways that maybe were not possible for other types of plants um speaking really specifically to the mixed race experience i also really connect to plants that again, very specifically, have been used for thousands of years by both European and Chinese peoples, because then I feel kind of that wholeness that like this plant belongs to all of my peoples. So an example of that might be hawthorn berry, Hmm. which has like a really, it's like really used in in Chinese medicine. And it's also really used in European folk medicine too. Um, Hawthorn berry is really good for your heart. People work with it as, you know, the berry itself. In Chinese medicine, we like dry it and eat it almost like a candy, but it's like very healthy, you know. Um, I, I believe, you know, European folklore, there's there's kind of some levels of like, there's a lot of European folklore about like the magic of the trees. And so again, hawthorn is a tree. So thinking too about like, I think of it's like heart medicine. It's like physically good for your heart. And it's also good for like taking care of your heart um, energetically, <laughs> emotionally. I hear it's good for uh, breakups. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I got to write these notes down. This yeah. is good stuff. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So I think, yeah, to your question about Chinese medicine, I weave it into my work by loving and respecting Chinese plants. And then the the framework and diagnostic tools of that, that body of work, I respect. And they're not part of my practice because I haven't trained in that path. So you're talking about your experience in relation with the plants, but you also work with the community, right? Like you are an herbalist, so you come up with different um, herbal remedies for people. And so do you factor in their own lineage sometimes when you're doing this? Do you, when you, when you try to do a diagnostic, I don't know if that's the right word, if diagnostic is the right word, but when you meet somebody and you talk to them, do you do like a download to get all the information of their ancestral lineage, the land that they're originally from, all that kind of stuff? I do. Yeah, that is part of how I work with people. So I have a pretty in-depth kind of initial consultation. It can be an hour and a half to two hours. I also do, I want to say I do free clinics and like super quick consults. And if I can, I definitely do this like really in-depth consult. And I do ask that, you know, what are your connections to your cultural practices, to your ancestral practices? I'll often ask, like, are you interested in connecting to, like, first of all, do you already have plants you connect with? at all period and then and then specifically of your ancestral heritages or heritage or heritages you know and and are you interested in connecting with them and i often will include plants from somebody's lineage if i can yeah and at this point i don't exclusively do that like i will work with plants that are not from my own heritage and i'm mindful of you know are there requests from community members if like a plant is endangered or is a really specific medicine that people have said this is our medicine we'd like it to be just for our people i haven't found as much of that especially in the kinds of plants that i personally work with but if if i'm aware of that then i would not use that plant because i also want to be respectful of other people's medicine because there is so much appropriation that that can happen that can cause deep pain so if i'm working with medicine i need to be really mindful of you know, medicine is not stealing someone else's 
culture. You know, beyond your one-on-one practice in supporting people individually, you do a lot of work in the community. Uh, in your bio, you you call yourself a cultural organizer. Can you say more about like what that means? And yeah, what what kind of more community-based uh, service um, are you part of? Well, you know, to be honest, saying I'm a cultural organizer is kind of a new thing. I, I looked at that title and I was like, oh yeah, I said that, you know? And really what, what I mean by that is at least for right now, primarily organizing within specifically Chinese community, actually. A few years ago, I put out this call to just a few friends at first to see if they wanted to basically have a Chinese cultural group. And the way that I framed it at that time was Chinese medicine and magic. And I asked all these questions that I think are really similar to the, the questions of, of your project of like, what is what is medicine, first of all? And I kind of defined it, you know, as like, just almost like a beautiful vision. Like to me, medicine is the stories we tell each other. It's gathering together in community. It's cooking. It's the plant medicine. It's singing. It's dancing. It's learning history. It's um, arts, like calligraphy. So just thinking like really broadly, what is medicine and what is our magic? Astrology, you know, connection to goddesses, connection to divination practices. I say that because I, I know so many people who like are really, really interested in those things. And for me as a, as a Chinese person, I didn't always know where to turn within my own Chinese traditions. Again, with that intention of, you know, I absolutely believe there are practices that are meant for sharing. And again, being really mindful of appropriation and, and being mindful of just like the respect of all of these different ways my ancestors have done these beautiful things and have had profound medicine. And why do I turn to somebody else's culture first before going to mine? But then adding the layers of complexity that a lot of that has not been accessible to me. Like I, I haven't known where to turn to, to learn Chinese divination practices or to learn Chinese astrology or like even learn Chinese herbal medicine outside of, outside of the path where I did end up learning some of that. But that's, that's not always all accessible because, again, there, there is so much disconnection between family to family. Like, you know, my mom's story is very much hers to tell. And, you know, what I, I think I can share is just that she just wasn't comfortable sharing a lot of her culture with me. My mom is an immigrant. She's born and raised in Hong Kong. Uh, my grandparents came from Guangdong province to Hong Kong. That was a big move in our family, right? The, the rural to urban migration. So them moving to Hong Kong was a big deal. And then, of course, my mom moving from Hong Kong to the United States was a really big deal. And yeah, I say all of that because that's part of like my yearning of why I created this this group is because just the levels of disconnection are so deep. I didn't know where to turn. So I created the group not to provide answers, but almost like selfishly to like hope that it would attract people who would like be able to teach me things. You know? Amazing. <laughs> yeah. What a good strategy. Yeah. And so that group, from when I started it, it immediately became a collective effort. So I have these incredible co-coordinators who've been holding that space together for the past few years. And we've celebrated Chinese holidays together. We've put together events. When the pandemic happened, we went online. And we, you know, we we organized somewhat sporadically. I think that's the nature of us having busy lives, to be, to be real. And I think our group might change. I think from a leadership perspective, I love the idea of even more people joining us on that leadership team because I, you know, it's it's not just my vision or even the co-coordinator's co vision, like it's becoming this collective vision. Because what I do want to share is that 
I was just wanted to start as a small group and it immediately kind of like ballooned into a big group. <laughs> Everybody was like, I have another friend who wants to join. I have another friend who wants to join. I have another friend who wants to join. Like it just immediately, like there was such a deep hunger and that's also right. like been super humbling, honestly, because like, I mean, just what a beautiful thing to see how many Chinese people were like, I deeply yearn to be in community with other Chinese people. And I deeply right. yearn to be in community with Chinese people who want to learn their ancestral practices and who have, because I, I will say the other big part of our, our group is, you know, coming from a perspective of being really mindful of our different gender experiences, different sexualities, um, like our desire to decolonize, our desire to be in good relationship with the first peoples of this land. And I think some of us were struggling to find that space in Chinese community, even though we're out there. There's so many of us out there, clearly, because we all you know, <laughs> kind of started to gather together. But I think I think there wasn't like a Chinese cultural group that people knew of yet that was doing that. So we're kind of an under the radar group that, that is doing these, these things. Yeah. And a group that's all about magic. Yeah. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I think you're... Uh, the idea and the intention behind this group is just... Uh, like you were saying, is meeting such a deeply held longing that so many of us have uh, to reconnect, to communicate with our parents and our grandparents in um, in deeper ways where language may be a barrier, right? And you know, part of that is getting to know the ancestry, getting to know all these different facets of our cultural being. Uh, so I'm I'm just so grateful that that you've created this space uh, um, for uh, the Oakland and broader Bay Area community. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you. It seems like you've been healing and healing yourself through the medicine, plant medicines, and herb and land connection, which is beautiful. And I just was wondering if you wanted to discuss more about. Uh, respect and reciprocity for plants and the indigenous. Yeah, thank you so much. That is such such an important part of this work and part of being a human right now to me and part of what real healing looks like. I don't think I can heal unless I really engage with these questions in a really real way for my entire life. I think that's probably true for most people, though I can't speak for others. And I'm, you know, looking at my own trajectory. So I've been in the the Bay now for almost 10 years. And when I first got here, I think it was really the first time I started again, learning and unlearning a lot about relationships with indigenous peoples. And I got to see and be a part of firsthand, just some incredible experiences. Like one that really stands out is the refinery healing walks. And these were a series of walks that were organized by Idle No More SF Bay. And they're a group of indigenous women living in the Bay Area. Idle No More is, you know, everywhere across Turtle Island. And then this San Francisco Bay chapter has these amazing, amazing organizers with a lot of grandmothers and a lot of young people. And the grandmothers have been really intentional about mentoring and bringing the young people up into positions of leadership. So it's just been this beautiful process to witness over the past few years. And with the Refinery Healing Walks, they organized a series of walks where there would be four walks in a year for four years. So it's a total of 16 walks. And we would walk from one refinery to another refinery in the North Bay area. So we're talking about like Richmond, Martinez, Pittsburgh, uh, Vallejo, I think, or Benicia. And there's a lot of refineries up there. So for folks who are 
in the Bay Area, if you don't live right next to those refineries or not aware of that, like some of us don't know that that's right there. These really harmful refineries that can really impact the people living close by. And then of course, there can also be with like, you know, bad air quality, that's truly impacting their quality of life. And then there can be disasters like, you know, the Chevron refinery has flared up, it has exploded, like there's, there's been some really bad stuff that has happened. So the walks were really to raise awareness about what was happening. And also, there's like this deeper spiritual level of like, seeing firsthand, right? Like the people on the walks kind of came from all different walks of life, including community members who were right there, including folks like myself, maybe living in Oakland or Berkeley or San Francisco, who who are, the refineries are not exactly in our backyard. So we kind of have to go and see it, you know, to really get in touch with what's happening there. And then they called where we walked uh, sacrifice corridors, because we'd be walking like along the side of the highway, you know, the route themselves, like, it, it speaks a lot to how these cities have been planned or not planned, right? Like there's not walkable areas. It's just like, it's all built for cars. So as part of these healing walks, it was also really, in my perspective, like healing for the land and the people on them. Cause we would be in prayer as we walked and we'd be praying for the land and we'd be praying for the water. So as we walked, our steps would carry those prayers. And I know for me, especially being somebody who's, who's not, definitely not indigenous to this land and also did not grow up here. It was a really, really important way for me to connect to this land, you know, cause it, and they were long days. Like these walks would some, would range from like nine miles to 14 miles. And we're talking about walking over asphalt, walking alongside the highways. Like I know there was maybe one or two walks where by the end of it, like I had a pounding headache. I could like barely move because we'd also end at a refinery and then I'd be breathing in refinery air. So this is, you know, it's it's a sacrifice to some extent, right? Like it's not it's not an easy walk. And at the same time to me it was so healing to be a part of because it was good to be able to say those prayers. It was good to be able to bear witness. I, in the end after I think I did about 8 of those 16 walks over the course of the years, like I felt just very deeply connected to that land. And also in my in my experiences, I had never been in a situation where water was being prayed to and talked to. Like now that's very much a part of my life. And that was the first time I witnessed that because they they would carry water at the very front of the walk on each walk, you know, and there would be like ceremony around that and releasing the water at the end of the day. So I think that just like profoundly moved me and changed and deepened my relationship to land and water uh, really by seeing that model. So I like, I really, really credit those incredible grandmothers and those incredible leaders and organizers and young people who held that space for people like me to walk and to get to experience that because it really changed my perspective. Like it just really deepened things for me. And then the the other really big, beautiful blessing to be a part of is the run for salmon. So I've been a part of that over the past six years. And that is a prayer journey led by Chief Kalin Sisk of the Winnemem Wintu tribe. And their, their sacred mountain is Puyampuyuk, uh, known as Mount Shasta up in Northern California. And she and the tribe are praying for the salmon to return. It's mostly the Shasta Dam that has impeded their ability to return. And then it's also all of these other water issues, water mismanagement. Now the temperature of the water is very hot. That's affecting salmon all over the state. And it's dire, you know, it's, it's really, really serious. Salmon are keystone species. They are an indicator of how we're doing. For them to not be existing is is very, very scary. Chief Colleen always says that like for her people, what happens to the salmon is going to happen to them. 
So that's part of like their commitment to defend the salmon, defend the waters, defend their sacred sites. Like they're interwoven with the salmon. So it's it's about a two-week journey where we trace the journey of the salmon. Uh, for four years, we we trace the route of the salmon coming from the bay here in Ohlone territory up all the way to Mount Shasta. And now we're in a reverse pattern of starting at Mount Shasta and coming down to the bay. And we bike, walk, horseback ride, and boat that journey. It's where the salmon would be swimming, should be swimming. So similar to the refinery healing walks, like we're praying on the land. We're with our footsteps, with our paddle strokes, praying for the salmon to return, praying for you know, indigenous mm. people to be listened to for their sacred sites to be restored, just, just praying. And the, the run for salmon the past two years has been private because of COVID, but in the past it's been public. Um, so if people are interested in it, it's something to keep an eye out for of different ways to, to participate. And similarly, there's ways to participate outside of like, you know, personally walking or, or biking, like there's, there's fundraising, there's um, contributing food to the event. Yeah, there's, diff- there's definitely different ways to, to plug in. We're not a part of the tribe. And I think that message still extends to all of us. Like if the salmon aren't here, none of us are going to do okay. And I just have so much gratitude for the commitment and the effort and the fight, essentially, that Chief Kelly and so many others are fighting to protect the salmon, to bring them back. Because like, in a lot of ways, they're doing that. They're Again, they're doing that for them. They're doing that for the salmon. They're doing that for the land. They're doing that for the water. And I feel like they're doing it for all of us. And so there has to be, in my opinion, that reciprocity of giving back, of standing with them, because there are so many barriers. Like they, they have the knowledge, indigenous, you know, land mo- knowledge, ind- indigenous land management, water management. They know how to do this. It's just that there's all these barriers, you know, very intentionally as part of this genocidal white supremacist country. Like it's all intentional, right? That for them to not be able to practice in the ways that they could or should be able to. And so I feel like so much of the work now living in this country is like trying to dismantle those barriers because they know what to do. It's just that all these barriers are up and in their way. So to me, that's related to my, I feel like it's related to my work as an herbalist. And like, more importantly, it's just related to my personhood. It's just related to how I need to be in this world is to just listen to them. And this deepening relationship with land just has to, it has to happen in relationship to and with respect to indigenous peoples. And I think the, the last thing I'll say, or maybe there'd be many more things to say, but it's also really important for me to talk about where I live, which is on Ohlone land. I just feel so blessed to live here. And I'm just so incredibly grateful for the, the work that's being done through the Segorite Land Trust. And a lot of people want to help and they have now built an infrastructure by defeating many barriers and many odds that have, that have been in their way. They have this beautiful instru- infrastructure of the Segorite Land Trust where they have an organization and they have you know, communications that go out and they have calls for action and they have fundraising efforts. So in some ways, it's actually become fairly easy to plug into their work to some extent. And I think that's part of my commitment is any way I can plug in to be a part of that work and also to be respectful that, you know, to just listen and see, see what arises. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Becca. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we wanted to transition we know you made a very generous offering to walk us and our listeners through a plant meditation. Yeah. So we'll hand it off to you. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Um, yeah. So I think I've been talking a lot about relationships with plants, or maybe I should talk even more um, because that's the basis of what I do is, is be in relationship with plants. 
And an amazing way to cultivate that relationship is to listen to them. And again, some people may have grown up with this kind of practice and some of us did not. So to me, it's really a practice of learning how to sit with a plant, how to listen to a plant. Um, so I'll go ahead and, and leave this meditation and for folks at home. You are welcome to find a plant that you connect with. It could be a fresh plant. It could be a dried plant. It could be a plant in the form of a tincture, if you're familiar with that, or a tea blend even. Um, just finding a plant that, that you maybe feel a connection with or want to get to know more. So I'll invite you to find a comfortable position. And you might close or lower your eyes. And I invite you to observe your breath just as it is. And when you're ready, I invite you to feel the plant. Perhaps you're touching it or even gazing at it. You could raise your eyes. And I invite you to introduce yourself to the plant who you are, maybe even where you come from, and your intention in getting to know the plant. It might just be, I'd like to get to know you. And in the next few moments, I invite you to sit in silence and stillness with this plant. Your eyes could be closed or they could be gently raised looking at the plant. And I invite you to breathe and just observe any sensations that might come to you. Whether it's a scent, a smell, colors that might float across your vision, images, a sensation in your body. I invite you just to listen and to see what arises. If your mind starts to wander, I invite you to gently bring it back. And again, just to observe any sensations, images, feelings. You might also ask a question to the plant. What I like to ask is, is there anything I can do for you?
And when you're ready, you can say your goodbyes to the plant, thanking it for its time with you. And when you're ready, you might wiggle your toes, wiggle your fingers, and raise or open your eyes. And when you're doing this, you can take the time you need. You could go for a longer meditation, a shorter meditation. I sometimes will journal right afterwards or draw. And this is a practice I like to do sometimes with the same plant over time, sometimes getting to know a new plant. And it's again, just that practice. And I think it can be helpful too, to just really keep curiosity and openness to let go of expectations of, I should have heard this, I should have felt this, to just be present with what is and just be in this practice of, of listening. So I wanna give a lot of gratitude to the plants for their deep healing for us. And I really hope that folks can feel those connections and grow those relationships. So many of us have relationships with plants, even if we don't call ourselves an herbalist or think we don't know about plants, all of us have some connection to plants. And I think just continuing to grow those relationships really helps us in our healing. Healing isn't just you know getting an herbal formula or um, working with an herbalist. Healing comes from the plants by making a beautiful bouquet of flowers or just sniffing the rosemary growing in the yard. So there's so, so many ways to connect with plant medicine and I really hope folks have the opportunity to do that for their own healing because that, that healing is available. <laughs>